This is Insight with Roz, a radio broadcast brought to you on podcast by I'mJustSaying.com, independent of the good opinion of others. Hello, I'm Roz. Thanks for joining me on Insight, where we're not afraid to look at life in 3D and tackle the tough topics all through the prism of hood feminism. My special guest is Chris. Now, I know we're all familiar with stories of the Forest Ranger, the Power Ranger, and even the Texas Ranger. But we're not inundated with stories of the Game Ranger, men and women who truly put their lives on the line in the protection of our wildlife. Poaching is the fourth most lucrative illegal industry. So the Game Ranger really does face danger. To tell us the score, my hero for sure is Chris, a former game ranger responsible for the territorial and biological integrity of conservation areas in various African countries. Hello, Chris. After that introduction, you can tell you're sort of my hero. <laughs> Thank you so much for zooming in and joining me on Insight. And as you know, I'm pretty excited because of what you used to do. For the benefit of listeners who don't have your background story, who are you and what do you do? But most of all, what did you do? Okay, my name's Chris and I used to be a game ranger in Africa. Now I'm currently a photographer, but I did game range for many, many years in many different countries in Africa. Now don't be modest. Which countries were you a game ranger in? In Zambia, in Mozambique, Namibia and South Africa. That's a fair few. How many of the local dialects do you speak and or native languages? Hardly any at all. So everybody speaks English. You know, you know what, you know, yeah, like, like a hundred years ago, Catholics Church, they basically set up these mission schools all across Africa. And now, due to us, us lazy English speakers not being able to or not willing to learn the local language, we don't really have to because they can speak English quite well. So I'm going to avoid going into the history of that. But I am going to ask you, before you were a game ranger, what did you do? I was in the army. Ah, a military man. Was it a natural progression then? Indeed, indeed. It, it, it's basically a military role. It's, it's, it's uh, um, anti-poaching work and game ranging. It's, it's very much so. So my romantic ideas of little Chris sitting at the dining table, I want to be a game ranger and save the animals, wasn't where this journey began. Not really, no. No, it, it kind of fell in my lap by accident. But I was always very keen on wildlife and animals because, indeed, you'd have to have a, a keen interest or you, or you wouldn't do it because it's not an easy job to do at all. Let's start with military life. What made you join the army? Uh, well, basically, I was um, finishing university and I wanted to do something that was fun and adventurous and the army seemed like a good way to do it. Was it fun and adventurous? Mostly. How long were you in the military? Six years. Geographically, where did army life take you, Chris? Well, I, I was stationed in Britain, but we used to go sometimes to Canada, to uh, Central America, to Cyprus, Germany, um, all over. And how do you manage, or can you actually have, a stable life if you are a soldier? 
not really at all, no. People do try, it never really works. You, you're always going somewhere else. Um, it's not the kind of life you can be settled with a family and do, not at all. Was that ever a conflict for you or pff, it didn't really matter? No, I was, I, I was in my early 20s and I didn't care. I was off to have fun, yeah. <laughs> and you got adventure. Certainly did. I'm not going to ask the next question about in every port. I shall move swiftly on. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever have to do a tour of duty or perhaps more than one? Not very much. Not very much at all, actually. I did travel around the world doing different things and uh, many interesting things. I got much more active duty when I got to Africa. So take us there. How is it, Chris, that you became a game ranger? I went to Africa for a different reason. I went because I was uh, teaching some people how to sail and liked it there and stayed and kind of fell into game ranging. When I left the army, I went sailing. From where I'm sitting, that sounds like the ideal life from a soldier to a sailor. Yes, I, I went sailing, uh, sailing racing yachts, and I ended up living in, in um, Florida in the United States. And while I was there, I was recruited because somebody had this wonderful idea. It was 1994. South Africa was changing. Um, everything was we were going to have the first elections. And uh, Mr. Mandela had been let out. And there was a huge optimism. And they were going to rerun the Cape to Rio yacht race, which hadn't been run for some years because of South Africa weren't allowed to um, compete in sporting events. Right. But they were going to rerun this. This was going to be for one. And somebody had this wonderful idea that they'd teach African guys sail in a yacht and they'd be in the yacht race. So they recruited some students from the University of Natal and they decided they needed a coach to teach them how to sail. And, and that was my job. So when you say chaps from Africa, are you talking about a specific place in Africa? And are you talking about black Africans? Yes, yes, indeed. Zulu guys. There would be Zulus. They all came from the University of Zululand. And uh, yes, in Natal, um, most people are Zulus. And they were English speaking. <laughs> to a degree, to a greater and lesser degree, yes. Um, that was exciting and that was adventure? It was great, except the guys weren't really very good at sailing. They had enormous enthusiasm, but they'd never been on a boat before, so it was a bit... And, and most of them couldn't swim and were scared of water, so it was not great. Soldier, sailor, teacher, how did you get to be gamekeeper? Well, well I was in Africa for, for a year doing that job. I liked to travel, so I went up into the bush, because if you're in Africa, you've got to go on safari, go and see the animals. I mean, it's, you've got to do it. So when I and absolutely fell in love with the bush. And um, after I, I finished, I didn't really know what to do because we finished with the sailing thing. And somebody offered me a job looking after a game lodge up in the uh, northern province. So I went up there and did that. So was that protecting private land? Uh, that one was, yes. From doing private work, you obviously went on to do it as a government position? Uh, when I went, to, uh, went, went north to Zambia, yes, I was working for the Zambian National Parks. Was that exciting? Oh my word, yes. And very different. And uh, I mean, I mean, really, um, we lived in tents. We lived in, we worked for 10 months without, you know, completely every day. Um, we would be doing many, many uh, foot patrols, looking after vast areas. I mean, the national parks in, in, in Southern Africa are as big as small countries. They, they are enormous areas of land. But even with these large tracts of land that you're talking about, it's land that's been reserved because we are taking the natural habitat. 
No, I'm sorry, but the animals live there. They are, the national parks are, are parks which are set aside for the animals to live. I guess what I'm saying, and perhaps not as well as I could, is I don't think we should have national parks. I don't understand why we're building so much. It's almost as if Africa is, is becoming somewhat like the West, and that's frightening with people living in wider, ever-expanding conurbations. And that is at the ex expense of not living in harmony with nature, but actually pushing back against nature. Indeed, you're absolutely right. The biggest threat to wildlife there is, is the loss of habitat. It, it, the loss of habitat make, makes things like poaching seem like small potatoes, really. It is the lack of habitat, the lack of land for animals to, to, to move around on. I find it really difficult to comprehend, even when I read it, reports from places like the Biological Diversity Centre, that around 30,000 species are being driven into extinction every single year. That's like three species an hour. Were you responsible for protecting any particularly endangered species? Oh, many, many. I mean, we were, we were trying to protect, predominantly, uh, we were trying to stop people poaching. You get different kinds of poaching. The worst one is commercial meat poaching, which is basically people poaching the smaller animals to sell for meat in the markets. Uh, the, 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 the bigger problem, the problem you mostly hear about uh, would be elephants and rhinos. There were no rhinos where I was because they had all been poached out already. There were none left. What? What? Not even black rhinos? No, 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 no rhinos at all in that area. There are rhinos in Africa, it's true. But in the area I was in, there were none. What about elephants? Because I know they say that poachers kill, I find this hard to believe, but poachers kill 96 African elephants every day. Did you I would find that quite easy to believe that. Easy to believe. We have a lot of elephant poaching. Why do they do it? For the, for the teeth, for the tusks. And occasionally they'll kill them for the meat as well. But of course it's a difficult animal to, to poach for meat because it's, it's the quantity. But you can carry the tusks out easily. There is one thing I wanted to go back on. You felt that the loss of habitat was the biggest reason for us losing animals. According to the World Wildlife Fund, poaching is the biggest and most immediate threat, especially to animals like the tiger. I can't really speak for, for tigers. I mean, I know, I know that tigers have been poached a lot. The problem is right now, economically, there is a huge market who can afford products from wild animals. That is why, um, and, and basically it's from the, from the Far East, but that they will buy products from tigers. They will buy products from lions which they use to make medicines. That is why now you get actual commercial farming of lions in South Africa, where they, they breed lions and keep lions just to kill those lions and sell the body parts to China. I can't take exception there, because if that's what people do, it's no different to having cows, I suppose, and lambs. So I don't feel comfortable with it, but I understand it. But it still doesn't feel right. So I guess that's just my socialisation with the issue. But unsurprisingly, I have a but. Do they actually work? When they take these medicines, when they create them, do the medicines actually work? Because then it'd be like a life for nothing. It wouldn't even be a real byproduct like 
leather for shoes? I, 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 I wouldn't think so. I wouldn't think so. I mean, a rhino horn, which is the most prized thing for medicine, is basically, if you look at a rhino horn, and I've, I've seen one, it looks like it's made of matted hair. It's just something, and it, it's exactly the same chemically as the hair on your own head. It really is. It's of no different value whatsoever. I never understand the obsession with keratin. You might as well just take the nails out of your fingers because that's keratin and use that to make your medical products. The damage that commercial poaching does far outweighs the financial reward or the cost of protection. It's destabilizing our very ecosystems. This is big stuff. Whether the government or the African coalition, and I do recognize that not all 54 nation states are members of the African Union. What are the governments doing to actually stop this? Only five countries collect and keep data on poaching anyway. So what are they doing? They are funding national parks. They are funding um, anti-poaching works. However, the, the, I think the problem is, I think the problem is bigger than that. You've got to go back to fact. When you've got thousands of people and in Africa, remember, a lot of those people used to be in the army because there's been an awful lot of wars and weapons are freely available because there were a lot of wars on the African continent. And those people are desperately poor. And somebody comes up to these people and offers them more money than they will ever earn in the rest of their life to shoot one elephant. You would be tempted, I would be tempted, and if, I, and if you had the skills and equipment to do it, you're surely going to be tempted. And you know the chances of being caught are very slim. And it's the actual people who are buying the elephant tusks who are the ones who should be stopped. The people on the ground, I mean, they're, they're, they're basically doing what they can to feed their families. And they will be paid very little for it. They will be paid very little compared to what their tusk will be worth on, on, the, on the market. But Chris, if you've got a gun and you've got bullets, I'm assuming that that's something that's expensive in Africa. If you've got that, surely you're not in such a desperate situation. Guns, guns are not at all expensive in Africa. Not, not at all. And because there have been so many, so many wars on African soil, there are so many guns around. It, it, it's, it's ridiculous how many. We, we used to find guys with guns and they were all ex-Soviet uh, ex and ex-American issued uh, weapons. Well, that ends that theory. What about education in terms of we need the wildlife? Does any of that happen? Oh, yes, indeed. And we, we actually did a lot of that in trying to teach the people um, that they shouldn't do it. The wildlife has a value. But the thing is, it's hard to persuade somebody who is very poor that <coughs> they shouldn't kill the wildlife so that people who are very rich from the States and from Europe can come and look at it. Yeah, and come, in some cases, to kill the animals and trophy hunt. But from our previous conversation and looking at the costs has actually shifted my focus. I'm not approving of trophy hunting, but when you look at illegal wildlife trafficking being worth £7 to £23 billion a year and trophy hunting bringing in an income of, what, £200 million annually, it kind of pales in significance and the emphasis the press gives it then, in my opinion, outweighs what's actually happening. I think the focus has got to be trafficking. So how can we 
realistically stop the trafficking of wildlife? By making the penalties for, for actually for buying and, and exporting the wildlife products to be, be so severe that, that people won't do it. Because it's hard to it's hard to come down on the guy at the end, the guy the, the, the guy who actually shoots the elephant. He, he's, he's the small guy in, in, in the loop. You've got to get the guy in the middle or the guy who is financing the whole operation. Given that you were stopping the poachers, how do you get to the position where you get the big guy, the guy that's got the money? Well, that, that needs to be something for law enforcement and senior law enforcement in, in, in like a kind of cross-country thing to, to, to go after these guys. It, it can't be done, but the individual countries don't have the budget or the skills to do it. It's got to be something like, like when you get these operations for, for catching the people who export drugs and, and, and things out of Central America. It's got to be that kind of level aimed at the people exporting animal products. If you know that the Far East market is the big market, why aren't our governments working with African nations to stop this? The governments in, in Africa aren't terribly excited about doing things to the detriment of the Far Eastern governments because the Far Eastern governments finance a lot of the things that happen in Africa. A lot of the kind of uh, infrastructure projects and deals are done with, with money from the Far East so that they're not really keen on stamping down on that, that part of it because it would be to detriment of that trade. And, and that trade is enormous. I mean, the, the kind of the Chinese alone own a lot of Africa now. And I mean, an awful lot of the, the most valuable parts of Africa. Don't get me started. <laughs> don't, don't get me started. <laughs> Silent, don't get me started. Back to stopping the poachers. So what did you do? Did you get up every day and patrol in a car? Is that how you protected our wildlife? Not, not every day, not every day. We used to run operations from, from various camps we had. We, we go out, mostly we do a lot of patrols on foot. We do a lot of training. Um, I would train rangers. We, we, we would get in, we would, we would uh, do our own logistics because we were at the end of a very long supply chain. So we had to just to get our logistics in, to get our men in and out and our supplies and fuel and vehicles and, and food. It, it was quite an operation. And then we would do a lot of patrols where we take men out um, in a vehicle, drop them at one place and then pick them up three days later at another place. And then we'd be moving on foot so that they couldn't be seen. So how were the poachers moving? Right, they would come in over the mountains. They would leave vehicles on the other side of the mountains. In fact, the best thing we could ever do is find out where they'd hidden their vehicles because we'd know where they'd be coming back to. And they would be moving on foot in small groups, usually quite well armed. There's a limit to how far you can walk out carrying the elephant tusks or whatever. So they would. we got to know how far they would move and in which areas they would move. Because obviously you can't walk 100 miles out, but you may be able to walk 50 miles out. So did you say walk? <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> so you did say walk 50 miles, right? Yes. And this was something that was done regularly? Oh, oh almost, almost every day. They would, they would be operating throughout the dry season. In the wet season, the ground becomes very wet and muddy and it's very hard to move around. Remember, it's very, very hot as well, which makes moving around difficult. Let me see if I have the right picture. And correct me if I go wrong. 
There are some poachers who didn't have a lot of money. They would go into the bush, which is nothing like a British safari park. Yes. And they would walk until they found an animal that they wanted to poach. Indeed, yes. They would know which areas they were going for. They, they would know which areas. Um, obviously, the best place to find animals is like by water holes, by rivers, where, where, where you'll get a concentration of game. They would walk, and they would walk for days. I mean, and literally, they would walk five days, 50 miles, quite easily to, to, to find what they wanted. But their cars were parked over the mountain. Yes, they couldn't drive. If they were to drive within within where we were, we would easily pick them up. So they would move their vehicles in so far, but no, no further. You had a team that was near water holes, near where animals congregated, and they would walk the same sort of distance patrolling? Oh, indeed, yes, yes. Um, and the, 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 the trick we used to find was to try and get our men between where they'd be hunting and where their vehicles were. What's the advantage of the in-between, in-between the animals and the vehicles, as opposed to standing guard? Because you'd catch them going in and catch them coming or out, because it would be the route they used. And that is... If you just went down to the river or the waterholes, it would be potluck whether you'd find them or not. And you have to remember, you're talking about an area the size of the UK. I take your point absolutely about guns being common and therefore easily available but cars poachers parking up and that gives me the impression that if you are poaching then it's a lucrative business yet on the other hand there's the idea people are poaching because they're poor so what's the situation you get different kinds of poaching right the 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 most simple one is what we call subsistence meat poaching that means you, you live in the village and it's the weekend and you want to, 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 to cook some meat. So you go off into the national park and you, uh, you'll use a snare because it's, it's the way they do it. You'll snare yourself um, a, a, an antelope and then you'll bring it back and you, you and your family will eat it. That is subsistence poaching. That is poaching at its most simple. Um, the, the danger part of that is that the guy will go in and he will set 10 snares and then he'll walk back in later and he's caught one antelope. He'll take that antelope and walk out, but there's still nine snares left in the bush. The second one is you actually get commercial operations hunting meat in, in many countries where they will go out with trucks and they will put hundreds of snares out. And they will catch hundreds of animals, uh, which they will take out and they will take them to the cities to sell. Now, is this That's what's called bush meat? Bush meat. Right, so that is basically a different thing. That is a commercial operation to get meat to sell rather than subsistence, which is to get meat to eat. Ah, two questions. Did you guys have to unsnare? If you can find them, we definitely used to collect them, but they're hard to find. Do you, do you know what a snare looks like? Big metal contraption with teeth, claws, and then you cover over... No, 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 no. A snare is much simpler than that and much more deadly. Okay. It's a loop of fence wire, which is hanging in a bush. And they'll hang that where the animals walk through the bush. You can see where they walk because they leave tracks, yes? And basically, an animal goes through, it goes over his neck, and it strangles him. And it's as simple as that, because anybody can get a snare. It's a piece of wire from a fence. It's a piece of, uh, of wire from anywhere. It costs no money, and it's absolutely deadly. So this is when they are poaching for food? 
Uh, this is when they're poaching for, for food, yes. Go in because he wants to catch one animal, because he wants to eat. The only danger is he won't pick up all his old snares. Now, I'm not talking about the people with the trucks and the hundreds of snares. I'm talking about the little man going in to get his antelope. How can we call that poaching when the man is hungry and living off the land? Isn't that hunting? Uh, right, well now you're getting into a bit of an ethical question. If a guy goes in um, for himself, for himself, um, just to, to kill an animal because his family's hungry, um, I would say that's hunting. Although technically speaking, if he goes into private land or into a national park, then it is poaching. But myself, I would consider that to be... I mean, if my family were hungry and there were some antelopes living down the road, I'd probably go get one. I, I can see their point. I really would sympathize with them completely on that. Once it gets to the point where people are, are taking out a truckload of antelopes to take to town to sell, then it's a, a serious operation. It's a commercial operation, and, and that is a different thing. So when you came across poachers, and we know they had guns, did you arrest them or did you shoot them? Uh, well, it depends. We, we, we never shot at the posters and let, uh, poachers unless they shot at us first, um, obviously. Um, and we mostly used to arrest them if we could catch them and then take them back and hand them over to the police. Did anybody ever shoot at you? Oh, we got shot at quite regularly, yes. Did you ever shoot anyone? <laughs> Not myself, no. Was anybody ever shot dead? People were shot dead, yes. I mean, it, it's that kind of operation. Poachers have weapons. We were, in, in effect, the policemen. We had weapons. I mean, it was a... Yeah, it's, that's what happened. Chris, were you ever scared? Every week, two game rangers are killed. Were you ever scared? Oh, indeed. Yes, yes. You, you know, you're scared of the poachers. You're scared of the organisations who are representing them. You're scared of the animals you're walking with. Yes, you're scared all the time. Yes. How did you deal with your fear? Well, you, you just learn to live like that. But you have to. But you have to be sharp. You have to be clever. You have to uh, work. Let's have a look at daily life or routine life. So when you're in the bush, when you're in the wild for four to five days... How did you survive? How did we survive? Yes! Well, we, 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 would, we would patrol all day. I mean, we would in the evening, we'd shoot something to eat and, uh, and we'd basically uh, set up camp and, 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 and sleep and then in the morning, get on and carry on. What sort of animal did you shoot to eat? Mostly impalas. Like a small antelope, about as big as a goat. And taste like? Oh, delicious. How did you cook it? Was it a bit like a shish kebab? Oh, fire! <laughs> Just literally fresh on a skewer over the fire. Yes, with anshima, which is uh, like um, 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 like a porridge made from corn. The staple diet of all of Africa. Well, not quite, but almost all of Africa is 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 uh, is corn ground into flour and then boiled with water to make a kind of porridge. It's got a different name in every country. In Zambia it's called Nshima, um, in Zimbabwe called Sadza, South Africa called Paps, but it's all the same thing. Is it tasty? 
No, it tastes of absolutely nothing. Yeah, because it really made me think of something my mother makes called cornmeal porridge, and it's just... Yes, yes, that would be it, that would be it. Yeah. In America, they call it grits, and in Italy, they call it polenta. It's all over the world. And it's awful. It's generally eaten everywhere, and it tastes of whatever you cook it with. So you cook it with some some, some spice or some sauce, and it tastes delicious. We, we, we eat it at home regularly. I heard you use the word delicious. On this, we will not agree. It's it's not my thing. It's not my thing. My mother loves it. So you I would, would send your I would send your mother around for dinner then. You... Done. <laughs> <laughs> Done. Do you put the meat in the enshuma or cornmeal porridge? No, no, no. You eat it separately. So you've got the cornmeal porridge, and then the meat is eaten separately, which you've basically killed, skinned, gutted, diced. And placed on a stick over the fire. Basically, yes, yes. Okay. Right now, it's not sounding so exciting to me. <laughs> oh, my goodness, you can long for pizza. Yeah. <laughs> I don't do pizza, but I'm not feeling that either. Were you able to fish? Oh, my word. You know, we were on the banks of the Zambezi a lot of the time, and the fishing was fabulous. Um, um, I used to do a lot of fishing and uh, used to cook, uh, catch fish and we'd, we'd eat those and they, they were fabulous, yes. So you've got fishing, you've got your food, it's all fresh, you don't have to worry about chemicals. I take it you didn't, you walked with the cornmeal, you didn't have to pick the corn and do all of that. No, 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 okay, no. We, okay. we walked in, because we, we wouldn't need much for a few days. If, if each guy carries a small bag, you've got enough to keep the whole lot of you going for the time you're there. So what are your tents like? Are they like British tents? Are they huge tents? Are they no, no, little no, we, things? We only had tents in the camp. We only had tents when we were back in the camp where we, we, we lived. When we were out on patrol, we just, we just sleep under the stars. I mean, it was, it was, it's hard. You don't need a tent. <laughs> you would just sleep like that? <laughs> around the fire, yes. It's not sounding as romantic as it did before the interview. I just thought you had all the facilities with you. So how did you take care of... <laughs> yeah, I know. This is, this is the problem, you know, when you've been brought up soft. So when you are there, how do you wash? Oh, well, no, we, we try, and try and camp with uh, some water. Yes, you get some water and, and uh, oil it in a pot on the fire and, and wash. And, yeah, yeah. And I take it the boiled water was also what you would drink? Uh, yes, yes. How did you keep cool? You don't. You don't keep cool at all. You, do, you, you just live in the heat. And I mean, there's no way you can keep cool. You, you, you can, uh, you know, dip your bandana in water and tie it around your neck. That, that works for an hour or so. That, yes, that's all. How close did you get to the animals? Oh, very, very close. I mean, you, you're living with them each day. I, I, I mean, really, you, you get very close to the animals. Um, you, 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 you often walk up on, on animals all the time. It, it, it's like a common thing. Did you ever touch an animal? Uh, not intentionally. <laughs> oh, is that scary or is that a no-no? Then... Uh, well, no, generally, generally, you leave the animals alone, they leave you alone. Um, right. If you, you, you learn, like, like bull elephants, the, the big male elephants, are usually quite chilled you can walk past them they really don't care about you you don't care about them that's all fine the female elephants that live in herds and, and have their babies with them get very excited if you see females you go the other way you go around because you don't want to stress them um, lions for example lions are very much not interested in people at all if you're walking and they stand up and they see you they'll just watch you walk past Although when I'm saying walk past, I mean 50 meters away. You wouldn't walk close to them. Um, 
Buffaloes, different matter. If you find the old buffaloes who live down by the rivers, they can be quite aggressive, so you steer clear of those. So you, you learn which animals you can and how to react with them. But if you treat them with respect, you generally are fine. That's the adult animals. What about the young? Did the young ever approach through curiosity? And uh, interestingly, I was, I was in, in, a, in, a, in a vehicle once and, and uh, a, a young lion came up and was right close to, because remember our vehicles had no doors, no roof. It was an open top Jeep thing. <laughs> and, and the lightning came and he was fascinated and he was looking and he was getting really close, this, this baby lion. And I'm thinking, just go away. Because you know his mother's out there somewhere, and she may feel that your your, your intentions are not good. But, uh, <laughs> but yes, yes. Um, generally speaking, um, you can get quite close to animals. I love the idea of seeing animals in the wild, and as you say, getting close but not personal. But at the rate of extinction, we aren't going to have any left. I recognise that the work that you did was vital and dangerous. But government isn't stepping up. Game rangers are underfunded. And the international will is lacking. Do you think that there's a bigger role for education and personal activism? Like making the Vietnamese people aware that the rhino horn that costs fifteen to $30,000 is just toenail? That that way we could have a real impact, a real effect on this trade? Indeed, you've got to stop the demand because because there is no shortage of people willing to fulfil that demand. If you, if you think if you could stop people wanting to buy drugs, you could stop the drug dealers, could you not? No, I think. If nobody bought the product, there would be enough. They wouldn't sell it. I agree, but to stop people buying the product, we have to give people hope and healing. We have to change the way that we look at people in society. As a society, we have to decide what we want for our fellow human beings. So as we're talking about poaching, it's the fourth biggest industry. Above it are arms, and above arms is human trafficking. So there's a loss... If, if, if you could make the demand go away, if there were no customers... But we would have to change what we care about as individual well, human beings in our societies. And if, if you could go to Africa and make all those people who are so desperately poor that they're willing to risk their life to go and shoot elephants. Remember, the poachers are risking their lives to do this. If, they, if you could make them have a more worthwhile life where they didn't feel the need for that, they wouldn't do it. Let's go back to teaching the people at Vietnam and other places in the Far East. Do you think that might be the most effective way to deal with this? I think that would probably be the most effective way. I think you, at the moment you can't teach the people not to poach because the, 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 they need to because they're so desperately poor. But if you taught the people not to buy the products, you might it might be the most effective. So how come we don't do that? <laughs> I really don't know. I, re I really don't know why we can't change these things in the world we live in. But wildlife tourism is worth five times that of the poaching industry. How come that's not the focus for the people who would become poachers? Why aren't they told, educated as to the valuable asset of wildlife tourism as opposed to poaching. 
Surely they're difficult questions. <laughs> I think we're getting, we're getting into some slightly difficult ground now, but, but I think it's very hard to explain to the people, the people on the ground, the grassroots, the poor people, the value of, of, of tourism and things. My, my, I mean, if you go to South Africa, well, the tourism industry is huge. A lot of people making a lot of money out of it. Now, there are game lodges, um, and the people who own the lodges, the people who work in the lodges do fine. But there are many, many millions of poor people who are not benefiting, benefiting at all from that, and in fact often look upon the tourists as, 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 as a source of something to rob because they can make a quick buck. It, it, it doesn't filter down to all those people. It, only a few people benefit from it. Or should I say a relative few people? Because, I mean, it is, it, it's a lot of people. If you took all the people who work in tourism, it's a lot of people. But it's not all the people. And you have a lot of people with no hope of, em of employment, no hope of decent wages. And that's, that's it, because they have to turn to crime. I'm not trying to be disrespectful about any cultures, but we move with the times and some things are better lessons from yesteryear and some things we do better today and i say that as a precursor to the question which is 60 percent of china's population and they have more than a billion people they have a lot of people <laughs> how do we get such a significant number of people to give up buying products from poached animals is that something we can lead on in terms of influential outsiders or is that something that has to be steered by, led by their government? If I can, if I can just use an example. In um, Iceland, this last few years, there's been a big um, campaign by like popular, popular celebrities and music artists and, and, and things to, to, to publicly say that they do not eat whale meat. Because they're trying to stop the, the, the people eating. I mean, people who live in Iceland eat whales. I mean, they have done for many generations. And some people are trying to change it. And they are having a degree of success. Now, if you take that example and then you went to, to China, perhaps, if you could teach the young people, the ones who are watching the music videos and watching the celebrities on, on, on Facebook or whatever, and get them to endorse not using these products, maybe that would in time mean one generation, you've only got to get one generation to stop doing it and the one following won't. That's 30 years, it's a long time. Well, yeah, indeed, indeed. <laughs> I'm just thinking, it has had a degree of success in Iceland with stopping people eating whales. Maybe we could learn from that, and, and that would be something we could look at in the future. Undoubtedly, education is the answer, but I feel very strongly that government has a role to play. Let's take a country like Zimbabwe where they probably have the largest poaching problem in the world. Why do you think the government isn't spending money on more people like game rangers to actually protect the animals and stop the poachers? Zimbabwe does have a big poaching problem. People are starving and um, a lot of people went into the national parks and, and, and killed all the animals. I think a lot of anti-poaching operations in a lot of countries are simply to tick a box so that when the uh, United Nations are handing out some grant money, they can say, and have you done anything on this? And they can say, yes, we have, we'll show you this. Oh, here's your grant, thank you. And it's very much paying lip service for that. So they do as little as possible. Doing as little as possible, that just says to me that they don't care. 
This brings me to the West. It brings me to China, countries where they are exerting great influence on the continent and basically ripping the heart out of it. Indeed, and, and they are spending a lot of money doing that, which is why the governments are not keen to stop the export of these products. Because they don't want to upset the goose who lays the golden egg. Unfortunately, what they don't see is there is no golden egg. You never do a deal with a Chinese and, and come out on top. They always win. Of course, I'd question that and say the same is true of Europe. But I want to look at your reasons why you say that, particularly about China. They've got the economic buying power to do that. And look, when Mozambique defaulted on their loan payments, it was about a year ago, they just took the port of Lorenco Marts, uh, Maputo as it's known now. Because, they, they, because Mozambique defaulted on their loan payments. So when China come and say, look, we'll build you a new highway and a new railway line and we'll finance it, you just have to pay us so much. And, 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 uh, and I'm sure the president thought, that's a great deal, we'll get new roads, we'll get this. Now, they've lost their main port. I can't go down this road, Chris. I'm going to end up talking about politics per se and not poaching. I'm going to have to have you back in the studio so we can do some of this unpacking. I was only doing now what everybody else did a hundred years ago. They're just behind. I need something happy, please, Chris. Uh. <laughs> I start down there. We are not going to finish. And I want to take you to the quick fire round. So I did warn you in advance. <laughs> are you ready? Okay, I, I, really, I don't know what to expect, but let's say I'm ready. We are going into the quick fire round. Who are you taking on a road trip? My daughter. If you were the Prime Minister for one day, what would you do? Zach Dominic Cummings. You're elected. <laughs> <laughs> Who would you share your lottery win with? You've got three people. Two after you name me. Of course, you, Ross. <laughs> I like you, Chris. <laughs> well, now I'm not <laughs> Your wife might have something to say about that, but let's continue. <laughs> oh, what, the lottery winner would load trip, or both, indeed. And actually, she might say, leave the lottery and go on the road trip. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it could be. Good girl. You never know. Like. You never know in life. So, who would you share your lottery win with? Um, uh, my family, of course. If. You had to do something. I, I don't know if you're familiar with the film Ocean's 8, but if you had to do something, who would you have in your crew? No, your gamekeeping crew. Who would be in it? Well, almost all of them would be old army buddies. Oh, really? Yes, when you, when you meet people in the army, you, 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 you stay with them and you know those people. So, yes. Is that, is that not exciting? No. What qualities do you look for in a partner? Honesty and integrity. Where would a woman find a man like you? Uh, you want my address? <laughs> <laughs> no, but where do you socialise? Where do you hang out? That kind of thing? Oh, uh, life's quite quiet these days. Go to the pub, you know, live in a small village and go to the pub. It's not that my, my kind of uh, wild days are behind me now. When did you first respect yourself? I think when I was in the army. When you, when you go through army training, you, you learn things about yourself you never knew. Such as? 
Um, your, your, your inner strength, your ability to, to do things, the ability to do more than you ever thought you could and survive. What do you think are the three biggest issues for black people? Oh, goodness me. The three biggest issues for black people. Well, I can't really, I don't know if I can think of three, but one is I think you must stop thinking that you're all one people. Oh, uh, we don't? That's what white people think? <laughs> no, 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 no. Because I don't think you can say black people because you can't say that a Zulu from, 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 uh, from Durban is the same as, as somebody who lives in Jamaica. You just can't. You, you, you're just different. And you cannot say that a man from Italy, who, who would be called a white person, is the same as a man from Sweden. It's the same as a man from America. They'd be completely different people. I agree, and but we have... And different, different ideas. It's not one thing. Everybody I, is different. I agree. Say in South Africa, there's a black and white issue. But it, all the time during that, there are nine distinct different groups of black people and two distinct different groups of white people. Say that it's a, this or that. It's a whole complicated issue. I agree with you, but what we all have in common, irrespective of which class we are from, which background we're from, is a feeling of oppression. And that is why we speak in the widest terms. But in how we are placed in society, we are seen as a homogenous mass by most white people. It's a very common thing. So on the one hand, we are arguing freedoms from the point of view of an oppressed people wherever we go but in terms of how we are related to we're often related to as if we are a homogenous mass but ultimately we want to be seen as individual human beings i, I agree with you completely in fact you're all different we're all different everybody's different moving on to the next question because that was not so quick if you could live in any country which would you choose Oh, probably uh, Belize. Oh, it's beautiful in Belize. Oh, my word, and the fishing. It's fabulous. Three words your friends, probably your army buddies, would use <laughs> to describe you. <laughs> no, let's, let's not go what they would call me. Argumentative, probably. Two more. I think people would regard me as quite honest, yes. And uh, kind. Are you a feminist? I, I just depends on, on on which kind of feminism and which branch you're talking about. You know, you know all this 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 man hating stuff. I don't go for. You know, I think that you know there's a place for men and a place for women, and, and once again, everybody's different. I, I don't think. But yeah, I think probably yes. It's funny, Chris. I have never ever met a man hating feminist. In fact, if it wasn't for my dad. I'm not sure if I would have found feminism as early as I did, but I've heard about these men hating feminists, never met one. You know, I've heard about them as well, yeah. I, to be honest, I've never met one. Yeah. Name two social justice causes that are important to you. The, uh, the, the ongoing farm murders in South Africa, which is a, a terrible, terrible situation. And... and um, at the moment, this demolition of these uh, forests to build this HS2 railway, which uh, they were busy evicting people today. So. And guess who I've got on the programme next week? <laughs> evicted from a tree. No, no, but one of the architects responsible for bringing the project to fruition. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> so, well, see? They, they, 
busy um, evicting them today, weren't they? The police. <laughs> exactly. they were in, in the wood that inspired the magnificent Mr. Fox. So, should you have any questions, please email them to me and I will put them to him when I speak to him next week. What does love feel like? Like an ache in a stomach. Like, like you can't concentrate on anything else. Like an ache in the stomach. Yes. Uh, I will... like, like, like the complete... Yeah, focusing on the mind and nothing else goes in. Yes. <laughs> I shall edit that for your wife and send it to her. <laughs> if you got a ticket to go on a rocket ship to go to any planet, would you take it? Mm, no, I think I'd prefer to stay here. I, I would rather have a ticket to go anywhere in the world than a ticket to go to space. If you could be any man for a day, who would you choose to be? Probably Robert Ruark. When were you happiest and why? I used to be happy when I was travelling and doing adventurous things, but now I'm, I'm happy picking up my daughter from school, so we change, eh? Have you ever stolen a sweet from the shop and what was it? No, I don't think I have. And now I have to ask you to give me a question to ask the next person I'm interviewing. So, what's the thing you do that takes your breath away? I like that question. Chris, I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so very much. Thank Good. you. Thank you, Russ. It's a wrap. Remember, you can catch all my broadcasts and never miss a show. I'm on all the major podcast platforms. Just press the follow button above or below. Be gentle with yourself. This is Insight with Ross, a radio broadcast brought to you on podcast by I'mJustSaying.com, independent of the good opinion of others.